0: Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Abbas Imbrani. Uh Welcome to the first event of our uh, uh, very eventful spring. Uh, we have, uh, last I counted, 15 programs in the next 10 weeks. Uh, some of it is on this, and you will uh, hopefully pick it up uh the rest of it is going to be on a different sheet That uh, is going to be the launch of uh, the stanford festival of arts on that we will have plays we will have workshops by uh, uh, professor bezai we'll have uh, plays by darvak group uh and uh hopefully we will send those out to you in the next day or two that festival has been made possible by the generous special donations of uh, uh, the ever generous Vito uh, Dario the Taslimi brothers, who have launched the Banani Memorial Fund, and Hamid and Cristina Mogata. Uh, they are the three sponsors for that festival, uh, which is going to be. Uh, it's a three-year project. Hopefully, it will be a longer, and it will have a set of events, as I said, in these different fields. from theater, to workshops, to cinema, to poetry, to uh, films. Uh, I'm not going to uh, give you the list of the rest of the events, you can pick it up, and if you are on our mailing list, you will be receiving this. It is uh, uh, very interesting, as we were walking here with uh, Professor Melville and Dr. Melville, uh, this has been a very unusually Ferdosi heavy year for us. Uh, We've had a series of workshops on Ferdowsi in Persian uh, by Professor Bezai. I don't think there is anyone, any artist alive who has done more work in rendering in theatrical form or in poetical form, uh, contemporary poetical work, Shah Naume, than Dan Bahrama And we are very fortunate to have him here. And the seminars that he gave, have had sometimes up to 20,000 viewers on the internet. So it is a program that has enormous, had enormous reach. We helped launch the book Shahnameh, which is a new rendition of uh, uh, Shahnameh, a new translation and a new rendition of the photography by Rahmanian. Rahmanian. Uh, We're going to have uh, two workshops on Shahnameh uh, by Professor Zahi Again, this quarter, one on Arash and the genealogy. We had two plays, uh, one of them directly inspired by Shahnameh performed here by Mojdeh uh, Shamsaei, uh, one of the, uh, the most remarkable actresses of the generation. And we're going to have, in a week and a half, Dick Davis here, who is a great translator of Shahnameh. So it's translated the three volumes of Shah Nahmeh, and has now written a remarkable book about Hafez. So uh, we are filled with uh, Shah Naume, Naume scholars, Shah Naume poets, Shah Naume actresses, Shah Naume actors, and Shah Naume supporters, uh, or the queen of supporters, uh, Malikant and uh, supporters. Uh, So uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, Professor Melville is easily one of the most uh, acclaimed scholars of uh, the Safavid era. Uh, His works on Safavid era are generally acclaimed to be uh, the standard text. uh, uh, His collections uh, of articles and his own writings are truly remarkable works in uh, unraveling the mysteries of one of the most important periods in modern Iranian history. Uh, in the last few years, he has uh, engaged part of his time in making uh, copies of Shahnameh available digitally in a project. In that project, uh, he has the good fortune, and we have the good fortune, of uh, having uh, Firouze Melville, who is a scholar. Uh, of much accomplishment she has taught in places from Princeton to now Cambridge where she works on the Shahnameh project and the Shahnameh project at Cambridge which hopes to digitalize the manuscripts of Shahnameh has been also uh, generously supported by it sounds like a uh, broken record <laughs> by you Ovari <Bita-dari-obari>. so uh, <laughs> Thanks to Bithad Yobari, Professor el
1: Well, thank you very much Abbas for that nice introduction and of course to all our friends and hosts here. We, it's very nice um, for Farooza and myself to have the opportunity to visit Stanford for the first time. California, not for the first time, but the first time I have to say, in such appalling weather, which we were hoping to avoid by um, coming west. Uh, Am I audible all right? Because if I bend over like this, I'll have a backache. Can you hear me? um, Yeah. Okay, well, um, the plan is that I'm going to talk for about half an hour or maybe a little bit less about the project that we've been involved in since uh, 1999 and uh, the ideas behind it and give you some sort of sense uh, about uh, how we view the Shahnameh and the sort of issues that uh, we're trying to look at and um, facilitate the study of uh, in uh, with with this project and then Farooza is going to follow up with um, a separate talk but showing some of the directions in which the Sharnamé project will be going in in the future it's already started looking at um, uh, if you like, the contemporary aspects of the Shahn Army, whereas my work has more been on the sort of reception of the Shahn in, Army uh, in history and in, in political uh, and um, literary culture, I would say. So uh, I've just got to get used to the various buttons. Um, <clears throat> yes. But what I'm going to really uh, talk about first is the contents of the Army a bit and what it is and what it isn't because I'm sure you all know as well as I do um, but nevertheless there's some misconceptions um, about what the Army really does and doesn't uh, talk about. The first thing is that it doesn't actually talk about Cyrus the Great. Uh, there is a misconception in some quarters that the Achaemenids are part of the army and indeed that the poem by being uh, essentially a history of Iran from the beginning naturally covers all the historical dynasties. In fact, this isn't the case. Um, uh, And indeed, these ancient monuments like the actually Rostam, of course it's not insignificant that it's called Rostam, because everybody could see that these were historical monuments. Uh, The tomb of Cyrus, which I showed you just now, of course was called the um, Modari uh, Suleiman, uh, the people at the time you could see there was uh, an impressive building, an ancient monument there, but they had no association of it with Cyrus the Great and they made an association in fact with Solomon. Uh, Next to Rustam the same, all these fantastic carvings uh, were clearly visible but people associated it with Rustam because they were stories of uh, heroic deeds and heroic figures and ancient kings and the same of course even for Persepolis which is as you know in Persian called Tati Jamshid. Of course this has got absolutely nothing to do with Jamshid but Jamshid was one of the most significant and symbolic of the early um, mythical rulers of Iran and so to have this very impressive ruined site associated with him is not so surprising. So in other words what we're seeing here is the characters from the Shah Nami and. that became emblematic and symbolic of different types of ruler and different types of experience being associated with um, ancient buildings and ancient history, whereas in fact they're not uh, anything to do with the Shahnameh itself. Um, So I mentioned Jamshid, it's a good place to start. So I just want to say why it's important, of course Faruza is going to pick up some of these things in different ways. (coughs) Excuse me, I must also apologize for the fact I've got a frightful frog in my throat. Which is inevitably going to get worse as <laughs> my talk progresses. I'm afraid it's the way things are. Um, so, first of all, um, to talk about Jamshid, um, of course, he's famous for many things introducing the crafts, <coughs> organizing society into its component uh, parts, which is a very important part of Persian political thought. The idea That everyone has their place in society. Uh, Of course these were the soldiers, they were the religious classes, they were the cultivators and then they were the artisans or the merchants. Um, This is a very enduring concept and it's absolutely fundamental in fact to political theory right up until probably recent times, that everyone has their place in society and it's the job of the ruler to keep everybody in their place uh, and to allow everybody to function properly within their allotted roles. So Jamshid was responsible for that and also for bringing um, knowledge of many different crafts and mining and travelling by sea and all these things. But of course the trouble is he got too proud as a result of all these achievements. And as you know, after initiating (coughs) Nowruz, which is the start of this new era, and taming the demons or the Deves, of course he lost his fad, which is this um, absolutely essential charisma. Uh, that marks a king out as uh, someone fit to rule, and of course his, he came to a sticky end. So um, this is probably the first of the stories with a great political resonance, really, um, in later Persian culture. Um, another one, which Fruz is also going to mention, <coughs> excuse me, is the uh, very important story of Karve and Zahark Uh, you all know I'm sure as well as I do that uh, Zahat was this uh, famous Arab tyrant and in the end after having snakes and I needn't go into all the details um, he uh, this uh, blacksmith Kaveh raised the banner of revolt which in fact was his leather apron uh, which became the symbol of the Persian kings uh, in revolt and this was uh, really of course an important moment in shame that in the end tyranny doesn't work and that the people are going to rise up. But he didn't rise up for himself. He rose up to reinstate <coughs> the legitimate ruler. Excuse me. I feel rather crude swigging out of a bottle like this, but it can't be helped. <coughs> So that's another story. So this is an important element in the Shahnameh. It's a story that has a great later um, reverberation, of course. And another one is the murder of Iraj. So this is a classic example of a foolish ruler, Feridun essentially, who divides up his kingdom. We all know that's a very bad idea. It's a bad idea in Shakespeare. It's a, a bad idea with Harun or Rashid. It's a bad idea all through history to divide up your kingdom because, of course, everybody is not content with their part. And what happens is that Erad, who gets the best part, being the youngest son, gets Iran. And Tur, of course, gets Turkestan or Turkmenia, and and the western side goes to his (laughs) other brother. And they're jealous. And what we see, why this is so important, well, it's important in two different ways. One, because the world that was one world is now divided. So this is the first division of you know, the world was the world, and it was all ruled by one person, everybody was happy. Uh, And now it becomes rent by political discord and rivalries. So it's important on that score, and because uh, Iran, as it were, becomes separated as a distinct entity vis-à-vis Turkmenistan, or the Turkish, uh, the descendants of Tur, and of course the West in the other way while still being the best bit, which, of course, all Iranians would subscribe to that view. Uh, and it's also important because Iraj was an innocent, and this is an absolutely essential point, uh, point uh, because he didn't necessarily want to be a ruler. He said, OK, you want my bit, you get on the rule, and I'll go and retire and contemplate uh, the Lord, you know, and spiritual exercises, uh, and in fact, his brothers paid no, no attention to this, and he was murdered in this way. This actually hit with a stool and all the rest of it so uh, this is extremely important and it has its echoes obviously in the uh, she, martyr of martyrdom and the whole idea of a, a murdered innocent so the Shahname in other words is the first narration of these absolutely essential core strands that run through Persian culture I would say not only political culture but also the religious landscape if you like of Persian thought and belief Anyway, so this starts off these great wars of uh, revenge. Uh, Manu Chir, the descendant of um, Iraj, defeats the the two brothers. And of course, this starts off this great cycle of warfare between Iran and Turan, which is again a sort of long-lasting motif that runs through much of subsequent Persian history. And as you know, of course, after uh, the Abbasids or really, the Arabs uh, really starting with the Saljuks even and the Ghaznavids and the succession of later dynasties, they're all essentially Turks <coughs> so we see you know, the influence of the Inaresian steppes also pressing very hard on on Persian uh, territory and um, culture another important story which in many ways echoes Iraj, the story of Iraj, of course is the famous um, martyrdom of another innocent Siavush you know, who has his throat cut in the most disagreeable way down there, and um, also goes through this ordeal of fire to prove his innocence. And um, of course, in the end, he's uh, also um, murdered, uh, not seeking the sort of political advantage that he's accused of. And here we have, a, again, another theme, I would say, a light motif running through much of Iranian history, which is the sort of jealousy of court, you know, we have a favourite vizier or a favourite bureaucrat and of course his rival immediately starts bad-mouthing him and it's not too long before the good vizier is kicked out and then maybe he manages to come back. But I mean this is all about, um, again, two things. One is this sort of uh, slandering and, and the bending the ear of the ruler to poison his attitude towards an innocent person but secondly of course again the martyrdom of an innocent so if you look at the great sort of tripartite strands of this you have the murder of Iraj, the murder of Siavush, then of course the murder of Hussein and this uh, uh, therefore is a leitmotif I would say that runs through uh, Persian culture and is very much wrapped up in the Um, Turning, so this is really all in the realm of myth and it shows the incredible importance of myth for explaining Current truths, if you like. I mean, because these are all universal stories, but applied to the Iranian context and the Iranian mental landscape. We do eventually hit real history with Alexander the Great and his defeat of Darius, <coughs> who was, of course, the last of the Achaemenids. So, in other words, the whole of um, Achaemenid history uh, is is lost to Ferdowsi and to his um, contemporaries. as I say they were unaware of this until. A relatively modern discovery of these of the significance of these sites in the 19th century, and the decipherment of the inscriptions at Bissetoun and so on, uh, which eventually revealed the uh, true significance of these buildings. Um, uh, and of course, Alexander destroyed the Persian Empire, and so it's slightly ironic, and of course it's also disputed in, in Persian historiography, that he becomes, in fact, another great ruler of Iran. And, and this is in a way not surprising because <clears throat> if you've conquered somewhere and taken it over you have the choice either of rejecting this completely and spending your whole life struggling against it or you accept the change of regime and you try to just put this into a narrative of the endless sort of cycle of um changing dynasties and so on uh, in other words you persianize alexander which of course is what did happen and so um, we have this touching and totally fake scene where Alexander is sitting there cuddling the dying d- Dara in his lap and Dara is doing a sort of when the fat lady sings effort at for the, for the end of the opera and um, <clears throat> saying you know that's alright you can be king after me everything's fine just look after my wife look after my daughter look after the nobles carry on the work I've done and Alexander swears to do all these things and so everything's alright so Alexander becomes the next dynasty in, in this sort of sequence of Persian dynasties. And of course, in fact, he destroyed the Persian Empire and, and burned Sepolis and introduced um, a whole new cultural uh, sort of landscape, really, with uh, Hellenism and so on. And um, however much he absorbed uh, Persian culture in the process, of course, it was a very traumatic transition. And then, almost finally, <coughs> De- moving into the historical period again we have um, the, the wise Anushya who's always called the just and this is also important because of course the Shahname although it's history, it's history with a purpose I mean like most history actually it has a didactic purpose and the didactic purpose of the Shahname is give you a blueprint of good rule and so all these rulers they come to the throne they set out their, um, their <coughs> statement uh, their uh, it's not exactly propaganda, but, you know, their ideology about how they're going to rule well and they're going to rule with justice and respect the order of society and all these things. And um Anushirvan has this sort of series of <coughs> discussions with Buzor Jmer, his wise counsellor. And the idea is that you're not only just, but that you seek advice and that a ruler isn't tyrannical. He's not rash and hasty, but he thinks about what he's doing, you know, the Nami Chudavandijan or Khirad, we all know it's the god of um, life and of ju- and wisdom and wisdom is absolutely essential in a ruler, not to be foolish, not to act precipitately, pre- precipitously and unjustly. So um, And this takes up a lot of time in the Shahnameh, especially in the sasanian period, which actually is the closest and the last of the uh, ruling dynasties to Ferdesa in time and the uh, Arab Islamic invasions. So this is also extremely important. And it's not surprising to find these scenes illustrated in the Shah very regularly. (coughs) Excuse me, it's a point, of course, that I've come on to. And then finally, of course, we have the end of the Sasanians and the death of uh, Rustam. And this is a particularly interesting picture because um, Rustam was the Persian commander and, of course, he was killed by the Arab Muslim commander. And what's happening here is the artist can't bear to show anyone called Rustam losing. And so, in fact, Rustam is killing the habitat. Here he is with his characteristic uh, snow leopard hat and his tiger skin, Babu And in fact, in this painting, the artist has transposed the story the wrong way around so that Rustam is actually killing his opponent. So it shows um, how one, one interpretation, of course, of, of this scene. So that's just a very, very brief. I've tried to focus on two or three of the stories that seem to me to have the most impact and the most significance really. Uh, And um, what we find, of course, is that many of these stories are illuminated in these beautiful manuscripts. And I just want to run through two or three examples of some of the most famous and and precious manuscripts. Um, Are the slides showing up okay? Because you could dim the lights a bit if they're not. Uh, This is the first of the really famous ones, the so-called Great Mongol Shahnameh, which was created at the end of the Ilkhani period in the 1330s. And it's a very dark and violent and um, troubled set of scenes, really, which clearly reflect uh, the contemporary realities um, in um, Iran at that time. Then we have this uh, three in a row I'm going to show you, all sons of Shah Rukh, who is the uh, um, grandsons of Timur, Um, Three princely manuscripts all produced uh, very close to each other around about the 1420s, 1430s. This one by Ibrahim Sultan, Uh, this one by Baisongkor. Absolutely stunning manuscripts. And then by his uh, younger brother, Muhammad Juki. Uh, These are all um, uh, regarded as the most uh, famous and, and precious of the... Copies of the Shahnameh, the so called Big Head one, which is rather an amazing um, copy produced in Lahijan, which one doesn't really associate with great artistic production at the end of the 15th century. And then the Shah Tahmash Shahnameh, I've already showed you that picture, I think. No, actually, it was a different one. This is the martyrdom of Siavush, One produced for Ismail II, uh, uh, Shahnameh, uh, the Safavid ruler. Another one produced by Shah Abbas, although this particular one was illustrated later at the um, end of the 17th century. And then another one for Shah Abbas II. So these are all associated, in other words, with um, princely and royal patronage. And, of course, because it's such an important story, because it has this great didactic message about um, how to rule, because it's so uh, symbolic of Persian culture, that a succession, a succession of rulers and dynasts thought it was part of their image creation, creating images of themselves to commission beautiful copies of the Shahnameh. <coughs> uh, so that's just a few uh, sort of highlights of the manuscript. So now, uh, so what? So the point really about the project, which I hope I've got time to talk about, is. Um, there are thousands of these things, essentially. You could study the whole of the development of Persian book painting just by looking at the Sharnari. For some of the reasons I've mentioned, it's the most uh, prolifically uh, reproduced manuscript. that's us say, you know, scribes copying it, uh, prolifically uh, reproduced um, copies with illustrations, and not just any old illustrations, but things on the, on the sort of quality and level that I, I've tried to show you very briefly. So if you want to study... Um, this phenomenon, there's a lot to put together. These things are collected in in, uh, collections of uh, museums and libraries all over the world. So uh, it seemed to me in 1998 that it would be useful to try to create a database of these Manuscripts and make them accessible to scholars, so you didn't have to fly from Petersburg to New York to Paris to. Although it's nice to do all that, you know, um, it's not necessarily all that easy. And when I started, of course, I was greeted with the most incredible disbelief when I said, "I want all the pictures in, not only your manuscript, but all your manuscripts." I mean, you can imagine the negotiations that had to go on. This is completely unheard of. Normally, you know, scholars would get one or two pictures to illustrate a an article they were writing or a book and what one tends to find of course is that it's always the same picture reproduced time and time again and um, so that was part of the fun was all these negotiations to persuade people to yield up their images which actually they didn't have so the project one of its first important jobs was to actually acquire these images we paid for the images so in fact the museums got archive copies of their own manuscripts which almost none of them had before the project started so that was a benefit to them that one could use to try to sell the project anyway this is very out of date um well not very but i don't know what the latest figures are we've now uh, recovered over 1,500 manuscripts are recorded nearer 20,000 illustrations of which about three quarters I've secured images for so um, so it's, but of course it's not just a gallery of beautiful pictures and um, the, one of the things we've tried to do I mean, there are many questions and of course this is the sort of academic or research underpinning of the project isn't as I say simply to provide these things but to Uh, study them and, and answer, or be able to answer various questions about them. One of the most obvious ones is about the placement of the pictures in the text, and in other words the relationship between the text and the image. We have a poem, we have someone doing a picture, how does the painting relate to the text itself? This slide is very interesting in showing that. It shows a number of things, of course. One is that on the whole the text was written first and the space was left for the painting to follow later in the atelier. The calligrapher would do his work first. It also shows that these things were planned, which of course is underpinning the whole idea. You didn't just have a a calligrapher deciding to copy a thing. Oh, I think I'll put a picture in there, leave a space and go on. And you you can see that it was planned. And how you can see that is because where the space is left. And as it happens, there's no picture here, so it shows it quite nicely. So what we've done, and I have to say this wasn't my idea, is to, as it were, map these pages. So uh, you take a fix by looking at this line in a printed edition of the text, and you look at that line, so this gives you the page. And then you look at the line before the picture, which we call the break line, and the line after. So it's like getting a geographical fix, or if you're a sailing person, it's like getting a spot check on your location. The picture is located in a very specific place. It's following a very specific place in the text. And if you collect enough of these, you realise very, very quickly that there's an incredibly close statistical uh, correlation between where these pictures come. Uh, In other words, there's a trigger. Uh, The artist gets to a certain line, and he knows that he leaves the space there. And the other thing this shows is that to get to that place, you often have to manipulate the text. And we see many pages before a painting where there are significant design changes, like this is a very obvious, this is called Chalipa, it means cross. It's absolutely clear from this that if the artist wants to get there and have his picture following that line, and also to make it look nice on the page, he's got to engineer the line to be in the right place, and that he worked out when he got to about here that if he hadn't done this, the the line would be down here somewhere and it it wouldn't work. Uh, This is a a simple example of this, but we see it time and time again. Um, So this tells us something about the production of the manuscripts. So this is a a lead-in also, it's not simply, as I say, a gallery of pictures, but we're learning more about the production of the manuscripts, how they were planned, uh, how, therefore, someone has planned in advance, they Mm -hmm. want pictures of this and they want pictures of that and pictures of that. It can't be random if they're planned. So who is deciding what pictures they want? Which are the most popular pictures? Why do they suddenly start doing a new picture which was never done before? All these questions are things that you can start to interrogate and answer if you have this sort of a a relational database which you didn't have before. There are some very obvious examples of the link of text and image. This one, I'm quite fond of the story of Bijan and Manije. You see here, we have an extraordinary graphic. This is from the Ibrahim Sultan manuscript. A graphic reproduction of Bijan being down in the well, and he's actually physically separated from what's going on above the surface by the text. Of course, there are other interesting things here. Something's gone wrong with this, and uh, you know the whole way the text has been produced. You know these lines don't quite join up. I mean, it's quite interesting to see what's been going on. Um, but this is an extreme example, but it shows how the artists were thinking about their relationship to the, the, the wording of the text. To create a beautiful page, well, we started with um, an access database. I've just given you an example of just more or less a random thing. This is Rostam, and you can see we try to look up these lines. So, this is the first line on the page, this is the last line, and this is where it is. So, you can see the break, the painting comes exactly after line 1174 and before line 1175, and it has a consistent title. Because it's very important that you're comparing light with light. So, all the pictures of Rustam drawing things out of the pit, you know where they all come in the text. We then have been working for many years on trying to recreate this in, in, a, in a website. And this is um, <coughs> a page uh, early on. If you look, view in archive, oh, and, and sorry, uh, view the archive by the collection, you see we've gone to all the different you know, collections and you can see how many collections we've viewed, how many manuscripts they've got, how many illustrations there are, and then this very interesting sort of tabular form that shows you when, you know, the peak of uh, illustration took place. It's usually in the 16th or 17th century. Um, But again, one can see, um, one can start to see the popularity of um, uh, different scenes and the production of the Shahn Army over time. If we click, this is the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. I'm afraid there's a lot of work still to do. Uh, you click on the Fitzwilliam or on the UK, you click on the Fitzwilliam, you get a little bit of information about the place. You've got five manuscripts. You click on them and you get, uh, you click on one of them and you get the description of the thing, a brief description of the manuscript itself, and then you get all the pictures in the manuscript. Uh, if you want to click on one of the pictures, you get the lines here, you see you get the title, you get some description of the format of the page, and ideally you'd have some descriptions. As I say, you know, we've got 15,000 or more of these, there's a lot of work still to do, so although I've got a lot of this stuff, it's going to, th- it's going to have to fall out before I finish. Never mind, Just it can't get greyer, but it can, uh, it can disappear. Um, in fact every time I look at this damn thing I just think how much more there is to do but anyway, it's a good start Uh, but the idea of course in the end and you can have your own personal notes and you can have your own workbook there are a whole load of features here so you can collect, you can click on the picture and you can save it in a workbook, whatever you like, and then you can go back to it. This is your private space. You can write your own notes in there, which are just for you when you sign on with your username. So it's great for teaching, it's great for students, it's great for assignments. You know, they can build up their own paper. Of course, for scholars who might want to write an article or plan an exhibition, I think we've got one down there, exhibition. This was for the Sharnamé exhibition. We are pulling out pictures that we thought it'd be nice to actually have. Um, And then you can also look at it by chapter or scene. And this is really when it gets interesting, because you can see how these different stories, which are all linked to a ruler, um, how many illustrations they have, and again, um, the period in which these illustrations come on. If you happen to click on one... Uh, which is actually the most popular, Rustam's 7th Labour, uh, Killing the White div. you can see that there are more, I, well I can tell you, you obviously can't see from this picture, but there are 265 of that, and rising. So, as I said, you, you, by having a database like this, you can see which are the most popular scenes. You can then start to think, why are these the most popular scenes? You know, And then you can see pictures that are only reproduced once, why suddenly in the... In whatever that is, the 14th century, is someone put in a picture of that? Well, there's never been one before down here, you know, in the 18th century. Why is that picture there then? Somebody chose that picture to be there. Has that got any relevance to the current situation, to the court? Might give you an, in, in, uh, an insight into when that manuscript was produced. So all of these are things. You might say they're even new questions. Uh, it's not just simply reproducing pictures, but it's finding uh, new ways of interrogating the whole production of Shahnami manuscripts when and why and how they were produced. So if you click on that one, Rustam Killing the White Deep, then you see whatever it is, 265 pictures, you can scroll through there and you can see all of them and you can see where uh, the scene is uh, delimited in the text. So in other words, if the break line falls between these two numbers, uh, the database is automatically going to prompt that that is the title of the scene and of course that's also very interesting because if it happens to prompt a different scene you click in the, the break line verse where the picture comes in the text and it doesn't say Rostam kills the white div you think ah so what's gone wrong it may be that it's just a bit lower down the page or a bit higher up the page or it may be that the picture shows something and the text is showing something else. It may be a manuscript like that blank one, which has been finished 200 years later in India, and the chat's done a picture of an elephant hunt, and it's got nothing to do with the shahnani. So in other words, this immediately focuses your attention on a seeming disparity between the relationship between the text and the image. So <clears throat> I tried to give you a very, very quick, thing. I'm probably gabbling here, because <laughs> poor old wants to get her chance, uh, to just tell you about the the database, and the sort of work we're doing with it. Now, so th- to put this in practice very, very quickly, um, this is some examples. So, Bahram Gore hunts lions. Bahram Gore is a famous hunter. He hunts at least four different lion hunts in the course of the stories in the Shah So, if you were an art historian to core, I might say, who really wasn't interested in the text, but simply interested in the pictures, you might say, well, that's fine. You know, let's just look at Bahram Gore hunting lions. Uh, or just the style, you might only be interested in the style of this picture uh, and actually in many art books you wouldn't get the text anyway, so who cares? But if you want to compare Bahram Gore hunting the same lines, if you like, you have to actually see that this is a deliberate choice to have that particular scene illustrated and not another one, and then how the artist has chosen to depict it. And in fact here we have Two totally different places in the text. This is verse 19, 9, 1, 6 in the text, and this is a totally different place. They're both Baphomet hunting lands, but they're both different. So you're not actually comparing like with like. I mean, the point is with that. I mean that you're not comparing two scenes. The, the artist isn't comparing the same two uh, episodes. If you have K Carvus airborne, it's a famous story which is one of uh, Fariza's favourites. This shows a different thing they're both in exactly the same place so that's good this proves the point maybe this verse uh, where the artist has introduced the painting in the manuscript is exactly the same but here we have a different uh, item a different um point about the relationship between the text and the image here we have K. Carvus just going up in the normal way of course he's got the hungry eagles raising him up into the sky here we've got him shooting an angel and a fish which has got absolutely nothing to do with the Shahnameh whatsoever. This is from a different text, but because this story appears in other um, narratives, in other literature, in other literary works, the artists who start to illustrate this scene have become independent of the text. They're illustrating a well-known story of a chap going up into the sky and shooting an angel, and they're just using the iconography of that picture and applying it to a Shahnami scene, which has actually got nothing to do with it. Uh, and so this is a different relationship between the text and the image. And the independence, one of the things one sees very often, is the artist actually becomes independent of the text, and they're pursuing their own tradition of illustration, which um, departs from the tradition of the verbal uh, part of the Shahnami. And then we see other totally different things. Well, we see. Um, Bijan again being pulled out, this is in the beautiful um, Muhammad Yuki Shahnami about 1440 and we see similar iconography applied to a different text but it's not pretending to be Shahnami, this is from something else, it's probably a story of the prophets Qasas al-Anbiya or one of the tafsirs of the Quran. Uh, and um, there we see him being pulled out with rather similar iconography to the iconography used in the Shahnami, so it becomes a model for artists um, using. Uh, illustrating other texts, and then we see the whole story of Rustam being transposed onto uh, other heroes. And of course, the other big hero in Persian culture and in, in modern or more recent Persian culture is Ali, Imam Ali. And so here we have a whole story of Namé or sometimes Khavaranname. <coughs> excuse me, which documents um, the adventures of Ali and beating the heathen and the infidel and converting um, uh, skeptical rulers to Islam. Uh, he starts off his poem by saying he saw Theodosia in a dream and he's emulating his work and uh, everything is in the same meter and so on, but of course the iconography by the artists who are illustrating the Khawar al they also following uh, the famous picture of um, Rostan killing Isfandiyar by shooting him in the eye with an arrow, and lo and behold, in the Kha'var al we see Ali shooting his rival with an arrow in the eyes. And so not only is the text influential on later Persian texts, but also the iconography and the imagery that's developed to illustrate the army, is used to illustrate other texts as well. So really briefly now, I'm in the last run. See, I'm not doing too badly, am I? Where did we start? Okay. No idea of time. I hope you're all awake still. Um, uh, this is um, also to demonstrate more concretely the uh, relationship between the image and the text. Uh, this is um, Farhad Mehran's beautiful idea for mapping a page. So here we have the lines which map this. And very quickly, this is the, the title. So we see that it comes very close. In other words, this is a very well organized page. The title of the episode. It's very near the beginning of the picture and we also see that this brake line or the line actually not so much the brake line as the line that um, describes the key moment in the story in other words when he's spearing him and he's got him over the back of his horse it comes exactly in the middle of the painting so that's one thing so that shows how well planned it is but it also shows how the text has been manipulated I don't know if you can read this but you can see we jump from line 1944 to line 1950. In other words, to fit this story in, the calligrapher has left out seven verses okay, to create the pattern on the page. So what we see there is a d- deliberate manipulation of the text to create um, a satisfactory page layout. I think, in fairness to Farooza, I'll stop. But this can be demonstrated in real life by other things. Um, <coughs> again, the story of the Davos Darroch, the 11 champions here, we see the trolley part to make sure the picture's at the top of the page, and blah blah blah, and in fact in this manuscript in Spain, it's very, very interesting, it's clear that the original programme was to have pictures, which in fact were never executed, and say the text has been put like this to fill up until we get back uh, to where it should have been in the first place. So... Again, we're learning something about the production of this particular manuscript. And one of the main things I would say we learn about all this is that every single manuscript is different. Every single manuscript has its own story, who produced it, who chose it, how it's been put together, if the page is in the right order or in the wrong order. And uh, many, many uh, fascinating and interesting things. And so, uh, not only is the text of every one different, but the iconography and the images are also very different. So thank you very much for your patience with that.